Hey, so this, this is our first, very first, as far as I know, uh, pre-Advent series. I don't think we've ever done a pre-Advent series. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you know this. I mean, this. This may create some anxiety for you, but that's okay. We'll get through it together. Okay, we'll just get through it together. I don't know if you're aware, it's only 56 days until Christmas, okay? And so, how many of you have, have actually done some shopping? You've already done some shopping. Okay, weirdos. And... Um, <laughs> And, you know, just planners and, you know, the rest of us uh, will, will not. Uh, now, 56 days. It, we, we've even had our first snow, which is actually a little late for Colorado. Usually the, the average is like October 18th, October 19th. So we had it late, which is a little bit of a fooler, you know, that, that winter is closer than it feels, especially some of these warm days that we've had. What a fall. What a fall. Did you go up and see the colors? You saw the colors? So you're thinking, leaves, they turn every year. What's the big deal? I just can't get enough of it. And uh, when we moved to Colorado, I don't know, now it's been 18 years or so ago, uh, and I came across and saw the snow had hit Mount Evans for the first time in the fall and saw just the, the white canvas that Mount Evans creates, especially if you're up, up just a little bit and get a good, good view of it from, oh, you know, Arapahoe Road or something. It's a great alley. You can see it. Um, it just looks like somebody painted it white, you know, big, thick, white. And I thought, I, w- I will never get tired of this. I said to some Coloradoans at the time, I said, did you see Mount Evans today? It was amazing. They said, I don't, what are you talking about? And I thought, and I remember thinking then, Lord, help me to never, ever get tired uh, or pretend like it's not the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So uh, <clears throat> God answered that prayer. And so 56 days till Christmas. And, and I, know it's, I know it's October, Okay, I know it's October, um, and I know that it, as November comes in, you know, maybe we have a few holidays before we even get to the holidays, if you will, but 56 days seems like a long time, but the truth is it's only 28 days until Advent begins. And when Advent begins, uh, it's kind of all over, you know, in some ways. Not really over, but you get busy, I get busy, we have things we have to get done. When Advent begins... It feels like it's sort of a mad rush, and the, the ability for us to spend time just to draw back and take a deep breath and maybe reflect and ponder, well, it feels like our, our ability to do that's pretty limited. So what we wanted to do is take some time between now and Thanksgiving, and really Thanksgiving weekend, which is unusual this year because Advent actually begins in November. It doesn't usually do that. Um, but this year, the 27th, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, is the first Sunday of Advent. And so this series and the Advent series will overlap by one Sunday. We'll link them together. But our, our goal through this pre-Advent series um, that we'll dig into is to just help us to prepare, to give you a runway for Advent. Because I think Advent, what Christmas is about... And what we need to kind of focus in on this year, it, it could not be more important than now. Than what's happening in our lives and our culture and what consumes our anxieties or our worries or what looms it feels to us. I, I feel like it's more important now than ever. So we want to take some time. We're going to dig into a scripture that's in uh, Luke 4 and Isaiah's beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's, it's pretty powerful. But what we want to do is take some time to shift our attention as we begin to wrap up 2022, readjust our focus, and put our hope where it belongs. I don't know about you, but every now and then I can feel myself being a little bit discouraged or 
feel myself feeling a, a little bit maybe low or it's, it's, not a, it's not a depression as much as it would be just this sense that, oh man, it's just hard. I, I feel like we're walking uphill. I feel like it's harder than it used to be or harder than it needs to be. And when this happens, I think what is actually waning a bit is hope. I don't know about you, I, I've, got a, I've got a watch. Some, some of you wear a smart watch, and this watch tells me everything. If I, if I press a button or two, it can tell me what my oxygen is. It can tell me how many steps I've taken so far today, which is a fair amount because I have a little puppy. And it can tell me, uh, it gives me a sleep score. I don't know if you do, do you get a sleep score. Um, I, I thought I had flunked everything I could possibly flunk in my life, <laughs> and then I get a sleep score. And so uh, it tells me all kinds of things, but what I'd really like is a hope meter. That's what I'd really like. I'd love it if my watch had a hope meter on it. And so if I were feeling a little discouraged or a little dark or began to see things sort of negatively, you know, you, you can tell when that happens because you say negative things, you, you take a glass half empty kind of view of things and I can just look at my watch and go, well, that makes sense. Look at that. That thing's in the, it's in the basement. This, this hope meter is plummeting. And I don't know about you, but every now and then I feel like my hope gets a little fuzzy a little uh, distant and a bit out of focus. And I noticed this when two things happen in particular. Number one, when my attention begins to turn inward and I think about me and mine and my stuff and my thing and my future and my deal and you know, put me in front of anything and that's what happens. My hope starts to shrink a bit. And then the other thing that happens is, is I begin to focus not on things I can control but on things that I can't control. And so when I start complaining about, you name it, anything from the weather to the situation in Washington to you, you know, you fill in the blank, all the stuff that I cannot control, that's when my hope begins to shrink a bit and get fuzzy. And so for this series, we want to use the clarity of Scripture to direct our focus and attention so that our hope is on a strong, solid, firm foundation and some things that we can come back to over and over and over again. And so this passage is in Luke 4, and it's also a part of what Jesus is quoting is in Isaiah 61 and a little bit of Isaiah 58, and we'll talk all about that through this series. But it's not just going to be me. We're going to have some other folks uh, that are connected to our faith community talk about the things that they're doing to increase hope and change all of that and then help us uh, through this pre-Advent series to get ready. 28 days we have until Advent begins. So when Jesus begins his ministry, he uses this powerful passage, and he quotes it. It's recorded for us in Luke 4, but he's quoting Isaiah 61, and it's this incredible picture that the prophet Isaiah provides for us. And when Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah 61, he articulates it, and then he says this to kind of sum up his time after he quotes it. He says this, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's this incredible statement that he makes. And it's almost unbelievable, and it should be, because what happened when Jesus began his ministry was the inauguration of a new era, a new season, a new time, a new epic that we are still in today. And Jesus says, what I've just read to you, the picture that the prophet Isaiah painted today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We're a, a little bit ahead of ourselves, and so let's back up a little bit so you grab the context of what this is, okay? Beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And so 
Luke tells us that story as well. It's the beginning of chapter four. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is not an unusual thing, and it's not unusual that this would happen with Jesus. You see this all throughout Scripture, that there is a time when somebody goes out into the wilderness, and they're tested, and, and, and they're tempted, or they go through a trial. It feels like that what God does over and over in our lives, and in the lives of these people, Jesus, Moses, Jonah, you name it, that there is a season where things feel a little bit lean, things feel a little bit dark, things feel a little bit hard. You go through a season, and God is using that time to prepare you for something. And I wonder if some of you are in a season like that right now. If you would say that, you know, that's what it feels like right now. Nothing's worked out. We got some phone calls we didn't want. We got some news we surely didn't need. Uh, these relationships are broken. Business is not good. I don't know what you would put into those categories that would call your time a, a wilderness time or a desert time. But God uses the wilderness and desert in a, in a myriad of ways, but mostly it is to prepare you for what's next. And that's what happens with Jesus. In the wilderness, he was tempted for 40 days. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. And so there he is, living through this, this temptation, this preparation. He makes it through this time and he begins his ministry teaching and helping, healing, connecting, listening, all of it, part of who he is and what he brought. And so Luke continues and he says this, Jesus returned to Galilee, it's the region up near the Sea of Galilee, larger region, about a hundred plus miles north of Jerusalem, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, what happens next is, is the subject of a lot of controversy in the life of Jesus and the people that are there. Uh, Thomas Wolfe, his great novel, uh, talks about how you can never go home again. And I don't know if it had it, its locus or its beginning in this experience with Jesus in his hometown, but it certainly is represented in heart and in spirit. Jesus goes home to his boyhood home. And what happens is, is incredible, it's powerful, and it's also quite confusing, and, and it ends just terribly. And so through this series, we'll unpack all of that, but there's the beginning that we want you to see today, and we want you to thoughtfully reflect on what Jesus shares. Here's what Luke says. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Now... When Jesus does this, he's, he's going to church, just like you did today. It's his habit. It's what he did all the time. There were meetings at church, the synagogue, if you will, that happened not on the Sabbath, just like we did. We had some meetings here yesterday, and some needs were met. We had some Bible studies on Tuesday and Wednesday and youth group on Tuesday. We had all kinds of things this week. Um, lots of things happened at the church, but this happened to be on the Sabbath, Nazareth, a small town, a ways north, a little to the left of Galilee, this is where Jesus was raised. And people would gather. And when they would gather, they would have church. And we know a lot because of the ancient writings about what church was like in Jewish life in the first century, especially in outposts like Nazareth. Jews would gather in the local synagogue. To have church, there had to be 10 men present. We count, just to make sure. 
I mean, don't get mad at me. I didn't make the rules. And it's the way they did it. We would be having church if no men showed up today. That's how liberal we are. <laughs> but in Jewish life, a patriarchal religion, this was not the case. Ten men had to show up and they would be there together and they would recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Lord our God is one. They would recite the whole thing. They would say prayers together. There would be a reading from the Torah, the law, the, one of the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Somebody would do a reading from the prophets. And then somebody, usually one of the readers, would explain how all of these things tie together. We even have copies of the prayers that they would pray in ancient synagogues in first century and before here is one of them. This is, this is from what's called the 18 benedictions. And in true Jewish fashion, the 18 benedictions is really made up of 19 benedictions. And so this is one of the, in fact, this is from the first benediction that they would pray together. In fact, I think, I think it'd be kind of special if we just prayed this together. We, we'll say it together. It's, there's a lot of words, but I, I think you could make it through it. But I think this will give you a feel for what it would have felt like in a first century synagogue. And so we'll move through it at a normal pace. I'll lead us and you can say it with me. Let's start. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. Blessed art thou, O oh Lord our God, and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob the great mighty and revered God, the most high God who bestows loving kindness and the master of all things who remembers the pious deeds of the patriarchs and in love will bring a redeemer to their children's children for your namesake. And it goes on. They would read some prayers often from this, Shemana Ezra, or the 18 benedictions as we call it. When they would do this in Nazareth, specifically it would be in Aramaic. When they would read the scriptures, they would read them first, somebody would, a reader, would read them in Hebrew. And then they would be translated into Aramaic. And when Jesus was in this place, I don't know if they used this prayer on that day, but all of the prayers had this sense of anticipation and thankfulness looking back. We think about what has come before us, and we're grateful. Lord, you've taken care of us. And I hope that worship includes that for you. Lord, you met my needs. You're doing your thing. I'm grateful for it. And we anticipate what you might do tomorrow and this week and in the days to come. Looking back and looking forward has been a part of faith from the very beginning. And in this particular one, they say, and we, we know that in love you will bring a redeemer. Of course, they're describing the would-be Messiah. This moment when God sends a leader. Now, most Jewish people, to be sure, thought this meant a political leader that would liberate them from all of the ways that they've been in bondage from people in Egypt to the Romans in the first century. But they knew that God would send them a redeemer. And so when Jesus shows up, he came to the village of Nazareth. He stood up to read the scriptures. That was 
not just, hey, Jesus is here. Let's, no, no, it was part of the service. It was part of every time they were in the synagogue. And this is what happens. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to Jesus. He unrolled it and he found the place where a certain passage was written. And so you can imagine, we have some examples of these scrolls. When we find the Dead Sea Scrolls, we think these were probably some that may have been used not in that specific time, but not long after, and wooden casts that would have helped keep these scriptures in place and protect them when they were rolled up. Jesus unrolls a Hebrew text of the writings of Isaiah, and he, I don't know, I mean, he couldn't search it, right? He knows right where to go. He had it memorized, I'm confident, and went to the place in Isaiah 61. Then Jesus begins to read this. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now, if you look up Isaiah 61 and try to find these verses that Jesus quoted, you'll see he didn't quote them exactly correctly. In fact, this is probably a conflation of a larger reading from Isaiah that would have included Isaiah 61 and portions, or at least some ideas from Isaiah 58. But when Jesus reads this, he is painting a picture of a moment in time. And this moment in time, prophesied by Isaiah, is a a study in contrasts. And you can see them. You could pull them out. If you had your own little copy in front of you with a little highlighter, you could highlight them. Good news that comes to the poor. Proclaiming that captives will be what? that the blind will and the oppressed will be. And this is now the time of the Lord's favor. Or some translations say, the NIV will say, the year of the Lord's favor. It's a direct reference and allusion to what is known in the Jewish law as the year of, does anybody know? Jubilee, that's right. The year of Jubilee meant that debts would be canceled So if you were wise, you would get your mortgage in year 49 because in year 50, your debt would be canceled. It meant that if you were an indentured slave or an indentured servant, in other words, you didn't have the money to pay your debt and so you paid it with time and effort and work, that that debt was canceled and you were set free. It meant that any forgiveness or bitterness that you had been holding on to had to be released and let go. It had everything to do with economic and agricultural life, all ground that had been used for agricultural reasons had to be completely fallow, left completely alone during the year of Jubilee. It was a year of giving back. It was a year of joy. It was a year of freedom. And when Isaiah writes this, it's not a foreign concept to the Jewish people, but he is describing an age or an epic or a season or a time that begins and then continues in perpetuity. In fact, the time of the Lord's favor, well, in Isaiah's prophetic imagination, it isn't just a year, it is, it is a, an until. Until what? There is no what. 
It just is. God's favor is now upon us. And these things have happened. Good news has come to the poor. Captives will be released, and the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. Time of the Lord's favor. This is a, a picture of utter and complete renewal that happens. And this picture that Isaiah paints would have been idyllic. It would have been, it would have been so perfect in everyone's mind. They would just, just pine for the day when God would send his Redeemer, his Messiah. And so this is what occurs. Jesus reads this passage, and then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. It would be the normal posture for a, a rabbi teaching or someone standing up, usually a rabbi in a synagogue, to explain what was read or what the text means or how it relates to the reading in the Torah and so on. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying this to them. Let's say it together. You ready? Today, this scripture is in your hearing. In that moment, that moment that was 700 years in the making. Well, longer than that, but it was 700 years before that Isaiah prophesied it. And in that moment, Jesus has the audacity in his hometown, the, the courage, the, with the wisdom to be able to say to his family and friends and those who grew up next to him and those who knew Joseph and those who were neighbors before, any of those things, that this today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what happens next is, is surprising a little bit, and it's also a little bit awful, and it's pretty incredible how it all kind of unfolds, that it would happen in his hometown, and, and that's for another Sunday. But to prepare for our Advent and for us to be thinking about December and what is to come, and all the activities are great. I love the festivities, and I love everything about Christmas, but what I want for me and you is to begin to relocate our hope in places that are proper, thoughtful, and enduring, not just so that we can have hope to get through the day, but so that our efforts and our energy and our, our funds and our attention, all of these things go toward bringing about this reality that Jesus described. I, I want us to have a bit of a, a hope checkup, if you will, so that we can reassess why we're here, why we do what we do, and why we decide to love the way God has commanded us to love. And to do that, we'll start today with this passage. In fact, let's read it all together, okay? Let's start at the beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And as you read this passage, I hope that over the next few weeks, you'll begin to feel the tension that's inherently here. Because either Jesus said this and it's true, or he said it and it was just a mere sentiment that we just hope for one day and we're really no better than the people who came maybe during the time of Isaiah or somewhere between Jesus and Isaiah. And we just kind of long or pine for what we believe is maybe unattainable. And at worst, not attainable, we just hope for heaven. 
So many followers of Jesus that I encounter realize that, boy, the world is just a mess and they just hope for the one day when Jesus comes back and everything's set right and we're all off in heaven playing our harps and doing our thing. And this, of course, is not the understanding of what Jesus meant when he said God's kingdom is here. And so when Jesus says this, and then we look around and we say, I mean, I I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but it feels like there's an awful lot of captives that haven't been released. An awful lot of blind people that are still blind. And many people around us that are oppressed that have not been set free. So what is it that you meant when you said this? What was Isaiah proclaiming when he said, when the Messiah comes, this is what will happen? In fact, this ought to be the question that keeps you up at night, not what's happening to your stock market account. This question ought to be the one that pokes at you. If the gospel is true, if the gospel is real, and if Jesus is who he said he was, then how come I don't see more of this And what does it mean for me? And what does it mean for you? And so before we start talking about what's happening in our world or what's happening around us, maybe the question you ought to ask is this. When you read this passage, do you see yourself in it? Do you? In other words, you might have to ask it this way. In what ways was I captive and how have I been released? How was I poor and the gospel has brought me good news. How have I been blind, or maybe better for most of us, in what ways am I still blind, and how can God help me see? When was I oppressed, and how was I set free? And the truth is, if you and I can't find ourselves somewhere in this passage, then odds are, when we interact with the world around us, we can't really bring good news unless we know that what Jesus said not only was it true for many but first it was true for me that I was captive and now I've been freed that I was oppressed and now I am moving in freedom that I couldn't see at all and now I see and this is how what Jesus said is true When Jesus says in that moment, this has been fulfilled. That word fulfilled did not mean, I mean, we're really hoping. It didn't mean, you know, if you pray the right prayer. It didn't mean if you follow all the right steps. If you obey the law, then you'll find that God is good to you. It didn't mean that at all. What he meant was this, that everything that was promised by Isaiah the prophet And all the other prophets, for that matter, this is just one example. He picked one reading out of Isaiah 61, that it is all true now. And in that moment, Jesus positioned himself not only as Messiah, but as prophet. And he said, all of this is true. And so if you can begin to reflect on that, the stories we'll tell over the next several weeks ways in which we, our church, and maybe you can be involved in helping this become true, not just for some people in our community, but people all over the world. Engaging in that is only meaningful if you can start here by saying, that was me. That was me. In just a moment, the worship band will come up and they'll, we'll sing these lyrics about how, how God has been good to us.
And so as we sing those lyrics, this is what I want you to be wondering and praying and maybe asking God, maybe thanking him for the ways in which what was true in your life is no longer true anymore. And it could be, and this will be true of me, it'll be true of every one of us, I was listening online, that there's one or two places where we are captive, one or two places where we are oppressed or maybe where we are blind, where God can still do his thing and as Messiah and prophet, what Jesus says is true and he has the power to make it happen. He can set us free. And so in this pre-Advent series, we at least need to begin wondering if this isn't true for us, how can we make it true for other people? Let me guide you through a prayer. Lord, as we pray here in this place and uh, in many homes, various places, we pray that these, these uh, lyrics that we will sing about your goodness would be reflected by the truth of this passage. Lord, as Jesus begins his ministry, as he makes this declaration, it is a bold declaration. And if any of us are honest, at least a little, we would confess that sometimes it doesn't seem to be true because we often feel captive ourselves. We often feel oppressed and blind. And and we know many others that are captive in lots of ways. And so, Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us, show us the places in our lives where we now experience freedom, where we were once stuck. That we can understand your love in deep and powerful ways and before all we found was judgment. Lord, there are times when all we saw was our desire for our own kingdom to build what we want, have what we want. But, Lord, you're calling us to place our hope in other places hope in the kingdom that is here that can grow as we love as we forgive as we show grace and mercy as we become like Jesus in this world Lord our hope and prayer through this holiday season as we push toward the end of 2022 that our priorities our resources our energies and our hope would be aligned with you and you alone and as we do that Lord we pray that your kingdom would grow We pray the very same words that Jesus prayed. That your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we want to only be about that. And so forgive us when we turn inward or or try to control things that we cannot control. Lord, sometimes it's a great distraction that keeps us from doing the very thing in front of us, which is to take care of those that need coats to meet the needs of a neighbor who's lonely and distraught. To listen thoughtfully to a friend who's lost their way. Lord, we declare that you have been good to us in so many ways. And so right now as we sing these lyrics, we pray that the truth of that would become obvious and clear. So Lord, in these moments, while we worship together here in this place and online, would you remind us of the ways in which we have been forgiven, freed, healed, blessed, loved, 
provided for. Lord, may we move in boldness because of that love and may we share it with the people around us. Father, you have been so good to us. We declare it now together. In the name of Jesus, we say this. We all say together, amen.